Sacred Space. So welcome back again to the second part of Sacred Space, coming from uh, Come and See Studios here in Ada. And as Shane mentioned um, in, in part one there, we decided to go through um, some news, news items from around the Catholic world. Um, we haven't really done it for a few for a few months yet at this stage. So Shane's been getting these few little bits in his computer working and he's working overtime and he's going to various parts of the world. Where do you want to start off with? I'm actually going to start in Ireland. Okay. <laughs> that, helps, that helps us all. Yeah. You? yeah. You know the way we all went to the polls about, it must be two weeks ago now at this stage, to vote for a new president and also to remove the blasphemy clause from Bunruk Nahirn. Now, it was interesting. As part of the exit uh, poll that RTE undertook, there was a, a slightly under-reported little... Um, uh, how shall I call it, statistic mm-hmm. out there that didn't get a whole lot of, of, of reportage, uh, which I thought was rather interesting. And that was the fact that more than two-thirds of voters want to keep the Angelus on RTE. Mm. So in the exit poll, um, it, the question was asked, should RTE stop or should it keep broadcasting the Angelus? 68% said it should be kept, 21% said it should be stopped, and 11% refused to answer. It's always an interesting one because there's an awful lot of pressure that comes on RTE to, well, not comes on RTE, they bring it on themselves, uh, to drop the Angelus from time to time. But yet it's amazing that you never find public support for people that have mm-hmm. an issue with it. Mm-hmm. And in a multicultural world, uh, they, they, they throw around when it's insulting to, to Protestants or to, 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 to Muslims or to Jews and oddly enough the Jewish community and the Muslim community have absolutely no problem with no the problem. Angelus I, I read that, none yeah. whatsoever mm, mostly mm. they've come out again and again in support of it it's our so-called liberal intelligentsia that seem to have a problem with it you know a bell ringing if you don't believe it's a bell ringing get, get over yourselves is what I would say in relation to that which brings me nicely along then of course to an interesting thing that came up in Europe on the day that we went to the polls. Now, we had the Minister for Justice, Charlie Flanagan, TD, going around telling us it was very important to remove the blasphemy clause from the Constitution. That's done. Case closed. We're not going to reinvent the wheel on this one. But what I thought was interesting was the same day that we voted to remove the blasphemy clause from the Constitution, the European Court of Human Rights upheld the conviction of a woman accused of insulting the Prophet Muhammad. And the European Court of Human Rights was set up in 1959 and it is the guardian of the civil and political rights enumerated in the European Convention on Human Rights. And we often, this is often thrown at various politicians. Ireland is in breach of this. Ireland is in breach of that. We need to be in compliance with this. We need to be in compliance with that. Oddly enough, I haven't heard the usual voices from the likes of Amnesty International Ireland jumping up and down screaming about this particular ruling which came out of the court. And what happened was the woman was convicted in Austria uh, she was charged for comments she made in 2009, during which she said that the Prophet Muhammad's relationship with his wife, Aisha, constituted paedophilia. Now, nobody kind of really knows. It's, you know, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, lived around 650 AD. Mm. She said that her comments were intended to spark debate and fell within her rights to freedom of speech. But she was charged by Austrian court for disparaging religious doctrine. Now, I don't know about you, John, but disparaging mm-hmm. religious doctrine sounds very close to me like the term blasphemy. But yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. upon conviction, she was fined 480 euros and she appealed. The European Court of Human Rights upheld the ruling and they supported the decision of the Austrian courts saying that 
the, the, the conviction balanced the right to freedom of expression with the right of others to have their religious feelings protected and served the legitimate aim of preserving religious peace in Austria. Now, it's an interesting one because, of course, there has been absolutely silence in the Irish media in relation to this particular ruling. And I have yet to hear uh, the Minister for Justice uh, giving a formal response to this particular ruling of the European Court of Human Rights. And he has given absolutely no indication as to how he's going to incorporate this ruling into his amendment to the 2009 Irish Blasphemy Act. And I, you know, so it'll be interesting to hear what Mr Flanagan has to say in that regard. Which again leads to more confusion for the poor old Joe Soap Irish Catholic mm. who's out there now wondering which way will I vote on this, that and the other. And you, you, you're trying to get your news... You're trying to inform yourself mm. from various news news sources. Um, by your your few little words there on our national broadcaster and also a dial Aaron, we're not going to get too much news from there by the by the looks of things as a balance point of view. Well, balance. balance is always a question. I people say to me, Shane, where do you get all your news and all the rest of it? And I say to people, well. There's a thing when you're trying to find information, you should triangulate your sources. Take mm-hmm. it from three yeah. sources which are quite extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so if I'm looking at, for example, political news, I might get something from the BBC, I might get something from RTE, and I might get something from Reuters. Yeah. So between the three of them, you have an idea of what, mm-hmm. the, hell mm-hmm. what, what the hell the story mm-hmm. is about. Mm-hmm. If it's in relation to church matters, so for example, I might take the Vatican News, Crooks, and something like maybe EW2N or something which is yeah, regard, or the National Catholic Register, yeah. something which is regarded as being a bit more right wing, just you know, just to balance it out mm-hmm. and get an idea of what's going on. But it's interesting going back to the blasphemy thing. It leads us nicely into the next story, which yeah. hasn't been very much covered in Irish uh, press, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been for the last eight years, mm. except in the Irish Catholic and the Irish, uh, I think it's the Irish Voice or the mm-hmm. Irish Catholic mm-hmm. Voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the case of Azia Bibi. She was a Pakistani woman, Christian, who has was recently acquitted of being of breaking the pa, the Pakistani blasphemy law. She was condemned to death under Pakistan's blasphemy law in 2010, and has been sitting in in isolation on death row since then. She hasn't seen her family. Her family were quite young. Um, I think the five children were quite small when she was convicted. And she was, uh, her conviction was overturned by the Supreme Court in Pakistan, and she was told that she was free to go. And it was, um, it was an interesting decision, uh, which has been regarded as a landmark decision by the judicial courts against coercion and death threats by Islamist groups. Because the problem is, her case is interesting. Pakistan has this blasphemy law on their books, whereby if you insult the Prophet, potentially you could end up in court. Uh, the problem is, when you go to court, nobody's going to repeat what the blasphemy was. So they're not actually going to repeat exactly what you said because it's reincurring the blasphemy. Uh, the problem is it also tends to be used as mob justice in certain parts of the country. And unfortunately in Pakistan at the moment, the extremists are out on the streets. They're burning buses and cars and the government is bending the knee to them because they're not quite sure what's going to happen. So uh, this week they took a case to try and overthrow her acquittal, which has gone to the Pakistan Supreme Court. And at the same time, the Pakistani government revoked her permission to leave the country. Now, the sad thing about it is her own attorney has previous, has left the country for his own safety. Um, a previous governor of the area that she lived in was assassinated because he went to defend her. 
and um you know it's it's just it's 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 a worrying situation and the problem of course is the fact that um this woman should be granted asylum there's no ifs buts or otherwise around it they should be getting her out of pakistan but that doesn't look like it's going to happen hopefully maybe in the next couple of weeks her family are in extreme difficulties they haven't seen her since she was released and both her family and her are being kept supposedly in secure um uh, insecure accommodation. Accommodation, accommodation yeah, you, know. if you can call it that. But I, I, I was also noted there that her family were the only Christians in her village. Mm. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but think about this uh, um, actually at the start of the program. When, we, when you often go through saints and so on and so forth, how many of these saints have gone through times of persecution and so on and so forth? Mm. In our modern day, we've got people like these particular people who go through these persecutions, who maybe, maybe are not noticed so much by ourselves, but there's loads of people like that. And it just brought to, brought to my own attention there that, that we, we should be very thankful for, even though we, we have problems from time to time and uh, the, the Catholic voice, maybe the, the Christian voice isn't heard as much in the marketplace in our own country as what he was, mm. but it's nowhere near what it is like with the way that some of these people. Mm. Well, in Pakistan in particular, it's one of the countries um, where Christians are discriminating against. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter which branch of Christianity, everyone's in the same boat. It's about two and a half million people or 1.6% of the Pakistan population. And the biggest issue is that blasphemy law um, that's there and this was one of the things um, that was used to repeal our own blasphemy thing out of the constitution last week that Pakistan has quoted quoted the Irish blasphemy law in defence of theirs um, but it's it's but the problem with it is that the Pakistani law mandates blasphemy against Islam it doesn't cover any other religion so that's part of the problem there and the other side of it is the fact of course that um, it's not uh, generally enforced by the courts or by police it's it can end up being mob rule uh, which is the difficulty as well in terms of controlling so it. I, I'd say prayers would be in order this particular week for Asia Bibi and her family definitely um so that definitely now some good news, John. Good. Well, yes and no. I'm not sure okay. it's good news, but it links into what you were just saying there about about early Christianity and the suffering of Christians and martyrdom, and that is the news, of course, that Algeria is preparing for the beatification of 19 of its Christian martyrs. So, uh, and on the December the 8th in uh, Oran, in Algeria, 19 will be uh, will be the beatification will take place in the Cathedral of the Diocese. Um, where Cardinal Angelo Bessou, who is prefect of the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, will preside over the Beatification Mass. Now, the interesting thing about it is, uh, if people remember a couple of years ago, there was that film of of Gods and Men, Mm -hmm. which covered the monks of uh, Tiburine, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, But also, so they're they're going to be... um, seven of the of the new people to be beatified. It also includes Pierre Calvier, who was the Bishop of Oran, who was assassinated, and other, other, other Christians that were killed during the civil war between the Algerian government and Islamic rebel groups. Um, it's, 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 it's a, how shall I say, it's a semi-sad kind of a, a day uh, in terms of, of, of the acknowledgement of the, of the work that they did, and particularly for the Trappists, um, who were very much known for their message of love and their, their what they would call the sacrament of encounter uh, between them and their Muslim communities. Just remind us again, 
What happened with those with, with those Trappist monks? So many years the Trappist ago? monks, mm -hmm. they were living in a monastery in a village up in the Atlas mm -hmm. Mountains. They decided to stay despite the growing levels of violence in Algeria during the war. And then at some stage in, I think it was 1996, mm -hmm. uh, they were taken from the monastery and eventually all that was recovered from them was their severed heads. That's more of it again, you know, mm -hmm. the these people and, and that's why these people are being hunted now did you say they're being beatified or, or, or they're being beatified. beatified so they're, they're, they're being beatified as martyrs uh, so there was no there was no no requirement to have a miracle so okay. they're being declared martyrs so then now an interesting one that came up during the week actually which I was a bit surprised at um, and occurred in New York. So every year, the Archdiocese of New York holds what's called the annual Al Smith Dinner. Yeah. And the Al Smith Dinner, it's a famous, it's a big hoo-ha in New York. It's a white tie affair, not black tie, folks. Mm -hmm. White tie. Uh, it's a big fundraiser for um, money, raised money for the Alfred E. Smith Foundation, which serves the neediest children of the Archdiocese of New York, regardless of race, creed or colour. And every year, the dinner features a prominent American politician. And during presidential election years, the two main candidates are generally invited to attend. And it's named after Alfred Smith, who was the first Catholic to be nominated as a presidential candidate uh, by, one of, by one of the two U US leading uh, political parties. Mm -hmm. Now, why it was interesting this year, obviously it's not an election year, so the, the address was delivered by Nikki Haley. Now, people will say, who's she? The UN representative that's about to retire. Yes, I think she, is the, she mm -hmm. is the US ambassador to the United Nations who's mm. about to step down. And what was interesting was she used her speech at the Al Smith dinner to acknowledge the church's efforts to address the sexual abuse scandal while continuing its incredible work helping mil millions of desperate people around the world. And, you know, she spoke of she had been to some truly dark places um, where the suffering endured by many people would be hard for most Americans to imagine. And she quoted the border between Colombia and Venezuela, uh, wh where people walk three hours each day in the blazing sun to get the only meal that they will have that day. Mm. Who's giving the meal? The Catholic Church, she said. I've been to refugee camps in Central Africa where young boys are kidnapped and forced to become child soldiers and young girls are raped as a matter of routine who was in the forefront of changing this culture of corruption, violence, the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Church's place must be with the victims that carry the pain with them. Um, at, uh, and she called the Church's global works of charity, education and healthcare everyday miracles and said that those miracles are the way of the Church. So it was just, it was an interesting, um, you know, an interesting... Uh, acknowledgement of the work that's done around the world uh, in various different countries by Catholic agencies and by the Catholic Church directly itself. Is she Catholic? I don't think so. I don't think she is, no. No, I don't think she is. Okay. I think she's Baptist. Okay. Or pres I, think she's, I think she's Baptist. And then, um, one of the other things that's coming up in the world at the moment, John, is the issue of the reburial of General Franco. Now, people might remember the Generalissimo Franco was the, uh, how would you describe him? The dictator of Spain, it's the easiest way to say oh, it, yeah. after the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And he was an um, extremely right-wing conservative dictator. Unfortunately, he got on rather too well with the bishops uh, of Spain at the time because he was fighting against the socialists who were supposed to be murdering priests in their beds, which did happen. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that didn't justify what he did in terms of this, the Spanish Civil War. But anyway, Franco was buried in the uh, the Valley of the Fallen in outside Madrid, uh, which is a monument to all those who died on both sides of the Spanish Civil War. Unfortunately, there is only two graves that are not are named in that particular monument. He's is one of them. And the Spanish government is proposing that the man is to be disinterred or exhumed and he's going to be buried somewhere else. The problem with that is the family's objecting. Now, the government is saying he's going to be exhumed. That's a fait accompli. It's not going to be changed because, of course, for many families of the victims of the of the Civil War, burying him there is an insult. Mm. Um, so the question is where they're going to put him. Now, the problem is the Franco family have a vault in the main cathedral in Madrid. But the government is saying, like hell, are you going to put him in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah. it'll only become a, a, a shrine yeah. for right-wing uh, people to you know, march up and down to. Uh, and they're trying to push it to where his wife is buried outside of Madrid yeah. in a family cemetery as well. So it's interesting to see what happens. The deputy prime minister of Spain went to the Vatican and tried to enlist them in the whole procedure because obviously it involves mm. the bishops and the Vatican said well we don't have a problem with you digging him up and we don't have a problem with you burying him but it's pretty much nothing to do with us <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so, like okay so yeah we're going to watch this space and Ex- you're going to keep us see involved. what happens exactly okay now yeah. the couple of other things just caught our eye uh, one is well not so much one other thing uh, there's two things I want to bring up how are we doing for time John you're okay for a few minutes about five or six minutes that's okay so now, this one, okay, this one might be a little... Have, have your tea, have your coffee, just bear with me on this one. We've spoken about the various Orthodox churches in the world before, John. So, um, these are churches which separated from us, from the Catholic Church, in 1054. Um, the difference with them and us revolves around, they have a different style of liturgy. Yeah. Um, but the main difference with them is that uh, between them and us is they don't accept the position of the Pope. Okay. It's, it's one of the main differences. There are other ones around liturgy, around the role of Mary, around the role of, you know, the, the intercession of the saints and that type mm-hmm. of thing. But the main one is the role, one of the main ones is the role of Peter and the role of the, of the papacy. But, each of them is independent in themselves. There's no Pope of the Orthodox Church. Okay. You have what's called the Ecumenical Patriarch. He sits in Istanbul or Constantinople. That's Bartholomew. Mm-hmm. But Bartholomew is first among equals. He doesn't, you know, he convenes the councils mm-hmm. of the Orthodox Church, but he's not like the Pope. He can't say jump and they all say how high. Okay. So you have different churches. So you have him. You have the Russians, which is regarded as the big bear in the room. Mm-hmm. Because it's the biggest Orthodox Church. You have the Greeks, you have the Georgians, the Serbians and Romanians mm-hmm. and Russians, and you have the Ukrainians. Now, there's a big kerfuffle kicking off between Constantinople and Moscow because Constantinople has decided exercising their authority to recognize the independence of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Okay. Now, this is a big, huge deal because it deals into the politics of Russia because at the moment, that's part of the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm. So at a sweep of a pen, Bartholomew is about to take about 12,000 parishes away from Patriarch Kirill Kirill Mm -hmm. in Moscow. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, he's not too happy. Mm. So they've excommunicated the the, the, the Patriarch of Constantinople. But the problem with it is from a person, from various different perspectives is it's recognizing 
the realities of the independence of the Ukrainian people to decide what church they want to belong to in terms of the the orthodox of that country. Um, it's been supported by the, the, the president, the prime minister in, in Ukraine. And it doesn't matter whether the president or prime minister has been Moscow supportive or looking towards mm-hmm. the West. They've always supported the, the, the independence okay. of the Ukrainian orthodox church. But it's a huge blow for the Russian Orthodox Church because they're going to lose quite a substantial amount of their parishes and of course because their numbers have gone down then they're no longer the big bully in the room when it comes to ecumenism and dealing with the with the with the Catholic Church in particular so that's where it impacts on the Catholic Church and ecumenical dialogue and how that's all going to work out as well as that then it also influences the bigger picture and the role of Russia in the world because the Russian Orthodox Church is also very much linked in with Putin's Kremlin. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea of Russia first, or Russia, I, I think the word you'd use is kind of Russian zone of influence, mm-hmm. uh, which which um, which they've been trying to promote, and which um, the patriarch Kirill, Kirill has been trying to promote as well. So that's one that will be interesting to watch, what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Uh, it's a bit convoluted to us, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah, Catholics yeah, and yeah. Protestants, it would sound rather convoluted. Like we're talking, it's interesting, you know, as part of this whole process, the Patriarch of, Const- of Constantinople has revoked a letter that was issued in 1647. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is this is how technical it's getting between them. Okay, but when you yeah. stand back from the the church politics, it's also very much impacting on the ordinary people of the Ukraine. And it was interesting. There was an interview with the Catholic. Um, I suppose you'd call him the Catholic Patriarch in the Ukraine. He's mm-hmm. actually called... He, the, the, the Pope hasn't given him the title Patriarch okay. because it was too political. Mm-hmm. So instead what they do is they call him the Major Archbishop. Oh, yeah, it's like, okay, okay whatever. Okay. But it was interesting. What he said was, it's the exercise of a people's right to have its own interpretation of its religious past, present and future, the right to have its own voice. And he said it was interesting because... Uh, you know, it's 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 a it, it's a liberation again of the Ukrainian Church, and of course, it feeds into the whole debate about Russia's involvement in Ukraine, the annexation mm, yeah, of, of the Crimea, and the civil war that's going on in eastern Ukraine at the moment. So, just it's something to keep an eye on. It's always a good idea to keep an eye on what the neighbours are doing, particularly in terms of the Orthodox Church and how it affects us. Well, it does. Thank you very much, Neil, for that. Yeah, uh, something just to keep an eye on. And finally, then, John. The big day today. Yes, today is a big day because, of course, today is the 11th of the 11th, 2018. Mm. Today is the 100th anniversary of the armistice at the end, ending the First World War. Um, a war that, co- that took the lives of 10 million combatants and which saw the loss of a whole generation of European leaders, young men that were sent over the trenches for no particular reason whatsoever. And the tragedy of it... Yes, John? Just remind us again, how many people... Uh, 10 million, I think, is the number that's given for deaths in the war. Exactly, and it includes, I think, think the Irish number of soldiers that are given is around 35,000. 35,000. And it's something, I suppose, in Ireland that we have to engage with because for many years these were the forgotten dead because they fought, obviously, under British uniform, Um, you know, and uh, and got, it got caught up in the whole narrative of 1916 and the fight for independence. But they are still Irish men, Irish women, uh, who deserve to be remembered. 
And of course, this morning uh, in St. Mary's Cathedral in Limerick, if anybody is still free and can get into it, the service of remembrance is at 11.15 in St. Mary's Cathedral. And of course, in France this morning, Uctoran Nehern, President Michael, uh, Michael Higgins, uh, will be joining with others like the President of France, the President of the US, the Chancellor and the President of Germany to remember the dead. But of course, it's interesting also to note that it's commemorating the armistice and an armistice is only the cessation of hostilities and the difficulty or the thing that we need to remember is that it only brought to an end the fighting on the battlefields of western europe but you know the battles of world war one have not finished they're still being fought across the world today that were triggered by that um, by that war in that started in 1914. If you look at Bosnia and the difficulties in Bosnia Herzegovina between, between the various communities, if you look at the conflict between Serbia and Kosovo, mm-hmm. the challenges between Greece versus Macedonia, if you look at the conflict in Iran, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, Lebanon, uh, the Western Sahara, Libya, Sudan, and South Sudan. All of those conflicts find, if you like, part of their genesis in the carve-up of the world after the ending of the First World War. You know, those wars of the present moment are the inheritance of that global conflagration, lines drawn on maps which furthered key conflicts. Um, And I suppose for us this morning, you know, people say, well, why should we remember? We remember because we must learn from our past. We remember because we must remember their sacrifice. And we must remember because they were our own. They came from our towns, they came from our villages to fight for various reasons. Some took the king's shilling so not to starve. Some took it for grander cause in terms of fighting for the freedom of Europe. And now more than ever, we need European leaders who can remind us of the grandeur of the European project, inspire particularly young people, and keep in fact, you know, keep in front of us that the greatest benefit of the European Union of the last since its foundation has been 70 years of peace on the continent of Europe. You know, that's what we need to remember when we talk about the European Union. And that's what we need to remember this armistice armistice morning. We remember so we don't forget. And we learn that from there to their yesterdays, we get our tomorrows. Thanks, Shane. So the bit of music you've you've chosen to go out? So the bit of music is taken from Carl Jenkins, uh, the arm, Mass for the Armed Man, and it is the Agnes Day.
Sacred Space.